Well, I invite you to turn with me to uh, Philippians, and we're going to pick up right where we left off last week in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. And this is, um, this is now Paul recounting for us and giving the Philippians instructions on uh, his, his friend and colleague and associate Epaphroditus. And we're going to learn from his example and consider these words together. So look with me at Philippians chapter 2, and I'll read for us verses uh, 25 through 30. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we, we pray now as we've heard the, the word read, may you uh, bless uh, the word preached. Uh, may I not say anything of my own accord, but every word that I say, may it be in accordance with your word. Uh, may you receive all the glory. May I decrease. Uh, may you increase. Do that work in us now, Holy Spirit, we pray. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you might have heard of uh, one of the most well-known goddesses in Greek mythology. Uh, her name's Apap uh, Aphrodite. I'm already messing it up. Aphrodite. She's often associated with, with uh, beauty, uh, love, and passion. passion and uh, She's a, a main figure in, in a lot of different stories. Uh, she shows up a lot in, in uh, the works of, of Homer, of the Iliad, and the Odyssey. And uh, as the Roman Empire began to take over the world... Um, they took this Greek mythology and, and uh, they, they took Aphrodite and they identified her with their goddess, uh, Venus. And so Venus or Aphrodite, they were a mainstay in, in this Greco-Roman culture. Uh, they were like the Marvel movies. They were, they were baseball and apple pie. They, they showed up everywhere. Uh, everyone knew about them. Virtually every home would have some kind of of, of uh, stations set up to worship these gods, and, and Aphrodite herself, she was this goddess of, of springtime, of fertility, of, of lust, and of passion. And so here we are in, in the first century, and we meet an associate of Paul who, whose parents no doubt had a great appreciation and love for this goddess Aphrodite, so much so that they named their son after her. And that's this man, Epaphroditus. And we don't know much about this man. He's only ever mentioned in this letter to the Philippians, but we can immediately see that there's something special about him because he doesn't at all seem concerned about serving his namesake, Aphrodite. Rather, his life is dedicated to a different master. And so how could this pagan, this pagan man born into this pagan household in the, in the Greco-Roman world, named after this pagan god for lust and infidelity, how could he, how could he be found to be serving the living God, the resurrected King, 
And it's only possible because of Christ himself. It's only because of who Christ is and what he has done. Everything that we've, we've already seen in this letter so far is proof of, of the life-changing reality that Epaphroditus had. Jesus saved him, and now he wants to live in response, to live as becomes a follower of Christ. Even a man born into deep darkness, the deep darkness of this, this pagan world, even this man bearing this pagan goddess's name, even this man, he has seen this great light. And so we know Jesus, he entered into the world at the darkest moments, but the darkness was not able to overcome him. And the example of Epaphroditus, the example he gives us, uh, is, is he gives us all hope that no matter what our background is, no matter what our past, no matter even, even the names that we bear, none of that can separate us from the love of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so last week we, we looked at Timothy's example and we considered how he's an example of Christ-like humility. But today, Epaphroditus, he gives us an example Another example to follow of Christ-like obedience. And now certainly both of these men, they, they both shared both of those uh, qualities, but, but they, these were most prominent in their respective stories, and, and we'll, we'll look at that. Paul, he's desiring to send Timothy back to them because he himself wants to return. Uh, but, uh, but first they have to see how it's going to go with him. And so Paul says he's going to send Epaphroditus back first. Epaphroditus was the one whom the Philippians entrusted uh, to bring this financial gift to Paul. And we'll, we'll see that uh, in, in chapter 4, verse 18, Paul references this gift and this ministry that Epaphroditus uh, brought to him. We don't know all the details about this gift, but don't miss the significance that Epaphroditus, he was called and he was commissioned by the church to be the minister and representative of them to Paul. And so now Paul is sending him back to them. And just like with Timothy, he has a, a not-so-secret uh, motive in, in sending him back. He wants to give them another tangible example of a, a, a personal role model of the Messiah, of the suffering servant, of what Christ Jesus himself was like. So Paul uses Timothy as an example he uses Epaphroditus as an example, and he himself will give his own example throughout the letter, especially in chapter 3. But all of this is pointing back to the supreme example of Christ. And so we, we need these examples. We need to be shown what obedience to God looks like. But we also need reminders that ultimately point us back to Christ and what he has done, what he has accomplished. And so today we, we focus on Epaphroditus, who does not only provide that much-needed example of Christ's obedience, but he also gives us a reminder of what Christ has done, what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And that's how I want to spend our time this morning, on, on those two things. First, it, considering the example of Epaphroditus, how we can likewise try and model our own lives after, after his example in obedience unto the Lord. But secondly, and most importantly, to see the reminder, to see how Epaphroditus reminds us of what Christ himself has accomplished, his perfect obedience on our behalf. 
this example in Scripture is only helpful because it ultimately points us back to what Christ has done. His obedience. Christ's obedience on our behalf. That's the only good news that we have. So those two things, the practical outworking, like what this looks like, and then also the theological foundation, or, or the, the reason why we obey. So that's where we're going. The first thing, right away, the first thing we see first thing from Epaphroditus' example is that anyone is able, anyone at all, is able to live for Christ. Epaphroditus was named after Aphrodite. You can hear the similarity in those names. But now he lives for Christ. So we've already said it, but we'll say it again. No matter what the background, no matter who you are, no matter where you grew up, no matter what your family name is, and what other people might think about it, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. And now you can live for Him. So let's look back at verse 25, and we'll see all these different titles that are given to Epaphroditus. Paul says, first of all, he says that he thought it was necessary to send Epaphroditus, who he says is my brother. He's Paul's brother. Not just in, in a, a, a jovial or, or, or a friendly way, but, but truly a brother, a spiritual brother. In the same way that Timothy was truly a spiritual son to Paul, Epaphroditus is his brother. Christ paid for, uh, with his blood for Epaphroditus, and Paul, therefore, are brothers with one another. And not just brothers, the Lord said, uh, the, uh, that Paul says, uh, not just brothers in the Lord, but brothers in arms, as it were. Paul says that Epaphroditus is also his fellow worker and fellow soldier. He worked side by side with Paul for the sake of the gospel, and he was a soldier fighting for truth, fighting for the gospel message, fighting for the cause of Christ in, in Philippi with him. He was a brother, a fellow worker, a fellow soldier, and we're also told that, that uh, he was the Philippians' messenger and minister. And so we see that these are, uh, this was an official calling that he had. He was an officer in the Philippian church. Uh, that, that word messenger is the same word uh, that's used for an apostle. Now, we don't understand that he was an apostle in a capital A sense, but, but he was an official representative of the Philippian church. He was commissioned to this specific ministerial ta task. He was an officer in this church. And so in all of these things, all of, all of these descriptions, we see how Epaphroditus, that name does not mean and no longer means a servant of Aphrodite. Now it means a beloved brother, a fellow worker, a fellow soldier, a minister, and a messenger. And that is quite the lifestyle change. We don't know about his conversion experience. We don't know much about uh, his story. But it's certainly likely that he was one of the pagan converts uh, during uh, Paul's ministry in this church. He heard the gospel preached by Paul. He, he heard the command to repent and to believe in the gospel, to be baptized into his name. And from that moment on, Epaphroditus started this life of obedience to his new Lord, his new master. But that kind of obedience 
does not always come easy. And we know this. Following Christ is sometimes costly. For Epaphroditus, it almost cost him his life. Three times Paul tells uh, the Philippians and and tells us that Epaphroditus uh, had a life-threatening illness. He was near to death, he says in verse 27, and then in verse uh, 30, he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. We don't know exactly what this, this illness was, uh, though some think it could have, uh, he could have developed some uh, pneumonia on his, uh, or some other disease on, on his route uh, to uh, Rome uh, uh, from Philippi, the same route that Timothy would make as well. But notice what he was willing to do. He was willing to remain obedient to the calling placed on his life, the calling God placed on him, and the calling the Philippian church as they elected him and commissioned him uh, to be a messenger and an apostle and a minister on their behalf. He was willing to do that work of Christ, to be obedient even to the point of death, and he nearly died for the work, risking his very own life, not counting it of any worth, but giving it all to Christ. That is Epaphroditus' example. And the question is for us, does that remind us of anyone? Does that remind us of, of any other story? You see, this is our, our calling too. We are purchased by the blood of Christ. We belong to him and are all likewise called to give our lives to him. Epaphroditus, he, he shows us how we must be obedient to Christ. He gives us the example to follow. But Epaphroditus does much more than this. He reminds us of Christ himself. And he points us back to what Christ has accomplished. Why was Epaphroditus willing to let go of his own life, no matter the cost? Because he knew all that Christ had done for him. He was willing to obey because Christ had already obeyed and done the work on his behalf. And that is the second thing that we must see from this passage. That's the reason why we obey. It's because Christ has obeyed and we have new life in him. Though we were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing uh, evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. You who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together in Christ. This is what the God-man, this is what Jesus Christ, this is what he accomplished. He accomplished our salvation. And Epaphroditus knew this, so he modeled his life after the example of Christ, the very same example that we've seen over and over again, and especially so in in that Christ hymn earlier in chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. And it's fascinating. There's so many parallels in this story and in our passage today to what is described of Jesus in in these verses, in verses 6 through 11. Paul wants us to see these connections. He wants us to draw these connections and see uh, how how Epaphroditus is is such a model for Christ. So consider some of these with me. 
we see that Christ, he, he humbled himself. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, verse 8. We see that. And so Epaphroditus, he has this mind of Christ, verse 5. He has this mind. He understands what Christ has done. And so likewise, he is obedient to the needs and the wishes of the Philippian church to, to bring Paul their money and to, to minister to Paul's need on behalf of the church, even though it almost cost him his life. We see that in verse 27, verse 30, to the point of death. But he would have willingly died in the service of his very own Lord, who himself died for his people. And so, Epaphroditus then is worthy of honor. We are to honor such men, Paul says in verse 29, just as Christ has been honored and given the name above every name. And so we need to to strive to be obedient. We need to live like Christ. The, the, the theme of this sermon series, you'll remember it, the, the tagline is to live worthy of the gospel. And we, we've spent some time making some important distinctions about and clarifications about what exactly we, we mean by that, and we need to do so again this morning. Because yes, we must obey. And we need to listen to the, to the imperatives of Scripture and obey them when it says to do this and to not do that. But why? And how? And, and for what purpose? We need to ask those questions. You see, because the law says, the law says, do this and live. Well, that's not good news. The good news is that we're not under the law, but we're under the gospel. And the gospel proclaims, it's all been done. And now you can live. It's all been done for you. There is no doing, there is only done and we live in light of this fact the gospel is the proclamation of good news that that christ died for sinners was raised to life and because we already belong to god now we can live worthy or live in a manner consistent with who we by god's grace have been created to be that is what obedience looks like for us that is the distinction that we we have to make when we, we strive to obey, and whatever it is, and whatever the different callings are in our lives, and we, we strive to be good husbands to our wives, and good, good parents to our children, and in our jobs, and our different vocations, whatever it might be, when we seek to obey the Lord and all that He commands for us in our lives, we must always keep Christ's obedience on our behalf in mind. We must never strive after obedience to try and achieve what only Christ can do. Christ was obedient on our behalf, and we must rest in His finished work, and then and only then does our obedience have its proper place in our lives. Martin Luther is wonderful on, on this point. One of the most important things in the Reformation was the recovery of this distinction between law and gospel, and Luther was on the forefront of doing that. And so, so he writes this. He says that you must first possess heaven and salvation before you can do good works. But works never merit heaven. Heaven is conferred purely of grace. That is the distinction we're making here. We live worthy of the gospel, not to earn the gospel. The gospel is not something you can be earned because that's not good news. 
But the gospel is conferred to us. The gospel is proclaimed to us. Christ is given to us. And now in response to that, not only, can, not only should we obey and follow him, but we can. It energizes us to obey. Our works do not merit us heaven. In his life and in his death, Christ earned heaven for us. And the life of obedience we live now is a life of gratitude. It's a life of thanksgiving for all that he has done. That's why we must always go back to what Christ has done on our behalf. If I preached only our obedience, I would be negligent of my responsibility. I would not be preaching the gospel. It is Christ's obedience that gives us life, that gives us purpose, and that gives us hope. And so we must always go back to Christ. He's the one who earned it all. It was his perfect and absolute obedience that accomplished our redemption. And I want us to consider and think more about his obedience today as, we, as we're, we're, we're wrapping up this sermon. Because this is so important. Theologians will, uh, throughout history, uh, have often made this helpful distinction between uh, Christ's active and his passive obedience. And that's not to say that Christ had two obediences, as it were, but he, in his obedience, uh, we, we see these two, uh, these two aspects to his perfect obedience, and they're helpful for us to recognize and to distinguish. And so we, we talk about Christ's passive obedience. And we don't mean that he was passive, that, that in the sense of uh, he was lazy or unassertive or, or that he let people walk over him. That's not what we mean. What, what we mean by that word is more closely associated with his passion. Christ's passion, referring to his suffering on behalf of his people. Christ was obedient to the point of death, it says. Even death on the cross. That's Christ's passive obedience. But we also know that uh, it wasn't just the cross where Christ suffered, but he suffered throughout his life. I think uh, theologian Joel Beakey is really helpful here. He says that Christ's sufferings for the sins of, of others began from the moment of his incarnation as a human being because he did not deserve the least suffering that touches every human being in this fallen world. And yet he did bear that suffering on our behalf. That's his passive obedience. His life and his ministry were marked by suffering, but he was not passive in the sense that he was helplessly acted against. He was in control the whole time. And that's all the more reason to give him glory because he willingly chose this suffering on our behalf. We see that in John chapter 10. It says, For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it back up again. This charge I have received from my Father. That's Christ's passive obedience on our behalf. His suffering on our behalf. But Christ's obedience has another aspect to it, which we uh, refer to when we talk about his active obedience. And so in order to understand this, this aspect and this, this, this distinction, we can, we can ask the question. It's somewhat of a trick question. But the question is, is it enough that Christ suffered and died for your sins? Well, the answer would seem obvious, and we'd want to say, well, of course. 
Of course it was enough. Right? But it helps us to understand this important distinction, this importance of Christ's act of obedience, because Christ's death on the cross, his, his blood that was shed for the remission of sins, in effect, it, it wipes our slate clean. But if that's all that was accomplished, if that's all that was given to us, if we were left at, at net zero and, and, and then uh, told to, to go and, and continue on in life, what would be the result? We'd be right back to where we began, wouldn't we? We would immediately mess it up. We would immediately transgress the law in some way. We, uh, we know that we are sinners we'd be back into the same predicament that we uh, found ourselves in in the first place. And so the good news of the gospel is Christ's perfect, entire, whole obedience, both active and passive. Not only did Christ suffer and die on our behalf to, ju- to satisfy the judgment of God, his, his passive obedience, but Christ also lived, actively lived, a perfect and perpetual uh, a life of perfect and perpetual obedience to God's holy law. That's what we talk about when we refer to his active obedience. Every breath that Jesus took, every thought, every step, every word, every action, all of it was in full accordance with God's holy law. He was perfectly righteous. And that righteousness, this is the good news, that righteousness is credited to our account. Where the first Adam failed, we, we read this earlier, what a, what a good providential coincidence that was. There's no coincidences, there's only providence. What a wonderful providence that was. We read that earlier this morning. Where, where the first Adam failed, the second and last Adam obeyed through his whole entire life, and he accomplished what we were never able to do. And that is why justification is the act of God's free grace by which and wherein he he pardons all of our sins. Our sins are pardoned. But in addition to that, he accepts us as righteous in his sight. How does he do that? It's only for the righteousness of Christ that's imputed to us, reckoned to our account, received by faith alone. I love how the Heidelberg uh, Catechism puts it. Question 60, it says that, Yet God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. It's as if I had never committed nor had any sins whatsoever, and that I myself had accomplished all the obedience with which Christ has fulfilled for me. That is wonderful good news. And it's this reality that the, the great Princeton theologian, uh, he, he, he would go on to, to found uh, Westminster uh, Seminary and to be a founding member of the, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, J. Gresham Machen, uh, wonderful uh, theologian and, and pastor. He, he's writing, he wrote this, uh, he, he's writing at the end of his life uh, in, a, in a letter uh, to a friend. And among other things, he says this. He says, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. There's no hope without it. This is what we can turn to. This is what we can can rest in. 
knowing that Christ has done it all for us. And there is no hope without it. And that's what we learn from this passage. We, we, we see the example of Epaphroditus. It's so powerful. And it's not, so not simply because he's a role model for us to aspire to, though, though he is, and though, though we ought to see his example, and it should spur us after our own new obedience. But even more than that, he points us back to Christ, whose life and death were marked completely, totally, by perfect obedience to all that God requires of us. And through him, he gives us life everlasting. Because of Christ's obedience, we now are new creations. Our past no longer defines us. We see this so clearly in our passage. Even a name like Epaphroditus that connects him back to this pagan God and pagan worship, even he, even that name, now means something else. It means a brother in Christ. It means a fellow worker, a fellow soldier. It means a minister. It means, it means a, 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 an apostle. But he's not a minister for Epaphrodite or Aphrodite. He's, he's a minister for the living God. And that's what Christ's obedience has accomplished for you. Your past no longer defines you. Because in God's eyes, you're defined by what Christ has done. We don't have to earn it, but we receive it. And we rest upon him alone. When we could accomplish nothing, Christ has done it all. Have you put your faith in Christ this morning? Go to him. Rest in his obedience for you. There's no hope without it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your perfect obedience on our behalf. Not only did you die for us, but you lived for us. You lived the perfect life that you required of us in the law. You credited that obedience to us, and now we can obey the law without any fear of the curse of the law, because you took the curses upon yourself. We can obey out of love and joy and gratitude. So give us hearts uh, of gratitude for what you have done. Give us eyes to see clearly all that you have accomplished so that we might love you more and seek to serve you in everything that we have. Thank you that we are not defined by who we were or anything that we have done, but we are given the name Christian because we belong to you. And it's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.